This is session 37 of A Better Brand of Happiness, which is my label for the book of Philippians. And in this session, we will finish looking at the paragraph that is Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. So please take your Bible out and turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And if you want to follow along in the app, the, uh, in the Sunday tab of the app, there's a spot that says uh, today's notes or today's message notes. Tap on that and you'll see the Bible passage there as well as some notes that I've put into uh, the app so you can follow along and take notes on the message this morning. But one way or another, whether in your phone or in your Bible, please turn to Philippians chapter 4 and follow along with me as I read Philippians chapter 4 verses 4 through 9. which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's Word. And in the previous session, we, in many sessions, we have looked at every verse in this paragraph of Scripture, and the one, the session just previous to this one, we began looking at verse 9 of this session, the very last uh, verse in this paragraph. But I just want to take a moment to quickly review, so that if you're new, you can, can get caught up to speed with where we are at least a little bit. And uh, for those of us who have been around, we can kind of remember how all of the things in this passage sort of fit together. So the next few minutes, I just want to take a, a few moments to review what we've already learned about this paragraph, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Now, I've taught you that this is one paragraph of, stri- of Scripture. That is, it is a distinct, complete unit of thought, and that this paragraph of Scripture contains six imperative verbs. There are six Six verbs of command that are really what pull this paragraph together. Those six imperative verbs are rejoice, which is used twice in verse 4, which says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The second imperative verb is in verse 5, and that's the verb be evident. Verse 5 again says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The third imperative verb is in verse 6, which says, do not be anxious about anything. The phrase, do not be anxious, is a verb of command. And the second part of this this, uh, command, it's a two-sided command, but it's the next imperative, the fourth imperative in this session, in this uh, paragraph, is present your request. Again, verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. That's one command. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. The word present is the next verb, the next, par- the next imperative in this, this paragraph. 
The fifth imperative verb is in verse 8. It's all the way at the end. After telling us a long list of things, the passage says, think about such things. And the phrase think about is a verb of command, an imperative. And then finally in verse 9, the final imperative in this paragraph is the phrase, put it into practice. Again, verse 9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And that phrase, put it into practice, is the imperative verb. And so these six commands in this paragraph of Scripture pull together what Paul is teaching us as Christians. It tells us how we are to rejoice in the Lord. Remember I said that the first imperative, rejoice in the Lord, I view as sort of the banner command, and the other five sort of fill in what it means to rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord by being, letting our uh, moderation be evident to all by not being anxious, but instead bringing our requests to God and so forth. These are the applications of the command to rejoice in the Lord. And as I like to do, I try to summarize a paragraph of Scripture in one sentence, which is called the big idea. And my big idea statement for this paragraph, Philippians 4, 4 through 9, is this. When you rejoice in the Lord, it will make you Gentle, prayerful when anxious, intentional in your thinking, and obedient to God's word. And so that's a summary of the entire paragraph that we've been studying together. Last session, we started focusing in on that last one, and obedient to God's word, that rejoicing in the Lord results in obedience to God's word. And we see that in verse 9, which we began studying in the previous session. And so again, I want to take a minute and just um, draw out for you on this verse, the, um, just the way that the verse breaks down grammatically. And so let's look together at Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, which we'll come to again and will be the focus of the rest of this message. Philippians 4, 9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And I told you that Verse 9 begins with a relative pronoun, that's the word whatever. And it's a relative pronoun because many things can fit into that category. Whenever we say, whatever you've learned, we know that there are a lot of things that can fall under that designation of whatever. And so that's how the verse begins. But this word whatever is not the subject of this sentence, it's actually the direct object of the verb, the command at the end, put it into practice. And so what do we put into practice? Whatever. But not just whatever in the general sense. After this, there are four clauses that fill in the meaning of whatever. And those four clauses are whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. One, two, three, four. These four clauses fill in what the meaning of whatever is. And so the verb in this, in this uh, section is put into practice The object of that is whatever, and the meaning of whatever is whatever you've learned or whatever you've received or whatever you've heard from me or whatever you've seen in me. Paul says, as Christians, we are not just to take in information. We are to take in information, but we are to process that information and then live it out in our lives, put it into practice. And so that's really the the ultimate meaning of this verse. And then following this teaching that All the things we have learned as Christians we should put into practice. We are given a final sentence, a final statement, and that tells us the result. And the result of putting into practice what we've learned or received or heard or seen is that the God of peace will be with you. 
This is the benefit of living out your Christian life. It's the result that God promises for those who receive his truth, process it into our lives, and then live it out. And so this is, again, an overview of this verse, verse 9, that we began studying in the last session and uh, that we are going to fill out and finish in today's session. And so this passage, this paragraph, tells us the, what, what uh, a Christian life looks like that's rejoicing in the Lord. And as I said last time, the emphasis of this verse, Philippians 4.9, is on obedience to Christian doctrine. And we looked first... Uh, Last Sunday, the first, in, at the first relative pronoun, uh, re- relative clause, I should say, in, the, in verse 9, which is whatever you have learned, whatever you have learned. This uh, session tells us that Christians are commanded to act in obedience to truth and that we should obey the truth in every way that it's communicated to us. These four clauses, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, these four clauses tell us the various ways God inputs truth into our lives. And the meaning of this verse is, we should obey all of that truth regardless of how it came to us. And so again, in the last session, we looked at the first of these uh, phrases, the first of these clauses in verse 9, whatever you have learned. And I told you that the truth is learned as in a classroom. And I spent the bulk of last Sunday talking about how the church is many things, but one of the things the church is, is a classroom for learning the Word of God. And that after we learn the Word of God, we are to put what we've learned into practice in our lives as Christians. Now, I said last time that this, uh, this phrase, put it into practice, um, means to do, to bring about, to accomplish something through activity. And I told you that it's a present tense verb, which means this is a continuous action. That following Jesus is a really good metaphor for the Christian life, not only because the Bible uses it, but because it describes what a Christian does. A Christian lives out the truth that we've learned in our lives. Christianity is not an act, and it's not a mental assent. It is those things, but it is, in addition to those things, a lifestyle. It is a pathway that we follow where we are following Jesus Christ. And again, the Bible says that we should uh, obey this truth in every way that is communicated to us. The first one was it's communicated in terms of uh, like a classroom uh, because the word that's translated in verse 9 says, whatever you have learned, that word learned means to learn in a classroom. It means uh, very much like what we think of when we think about going to school. And so, like I said, the church is, among other things, a classroom. But Paul goes on in verse 9 and says this, whatever you have learned or received, whatever you have learned or received, and that second word received, that second um, uh, clause in this verse, tells us another way that God inputs truth into our lives. When we become Christians, not only do we begin to enter the school of Jesus, you might say, by learning in the church what God's word says, as in a classroom, But the Bible says that we also receive truth. And this brings us to the second thing that, uh, the second way that truth is communicated to us as Christians, and that is that truth is received like a tradition. It is received like a tradition. Now, you are familiar with the idea of a tradition. Every 
distinct group of people has certain traditions. Your family has certain traditions. They might be as simple as taking your shoes off when you come into the house. All right, if you do that and it's not necessarily been taught to your children, it's just something that mom and dad did and so the kids learned to do it, it's something that sort of was received as a tradition. Or if you think about us as Americans, okay, we celebrate on July 4th our independence. Other countries may have an independence day, but July 4th is ours. And one of the traditions that we have for many Americans is we shoot off fireworks. Why do we do this? I don't know why. But it's a tradition. Okay, it's something that we've, that we've observed in other Americans, and it's something that sort of unites us on July 4th. Well, the Bible says that some of what we learn as Christians is received by tradition. That is, not only are we taught it in a classroom, but it's something that's, that, that some of the truth that we know as Christians is sort of handed down from one generation to the next. And this idea, this word received, is also used in other places in the New Testament, As a technical term, it's used in several places to refer to facts about Christ, typically, and doctrines about Christ that are really essential to being a Christian. Before the New Testament was written, people were coming to Jesus Christ, and what they were learning about Jesus Christ was something that was passed on by oral tradition, the stories of the life of Jesus and the teachings of the life of Jesus and the meaning of those teachings were handed down from the apostles to the churches as the New Testament was being written and recorded. And the ultimate source of this tradition, the ultimate person who began causing us to receive truth was God himself. When this idea of received or tradition is used in the New Testament, it's not used of tradition that people made up. That's what July 4th is like. The traditions we celebrate on the 4th of July were made up by people. Not so with the traditions that Paul is referring to when he says we've received certain things. What we've received, we received from God himself. And then they were passed on from God, usually through the apostles, and then to the people in the church. They were received in that they are passed on to us by direct revelation from God himself. And I want to show you three passages, other passages in Scripture, where this same word received is used in the sense that that we are talking about here. Where God communicated something to the Apostle Paul in this case, and then Paul passed it on to the churches. All right, the first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, which I read every time we observe the Lord's Supper. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Now, some of the apostles, in fact, all of the apostles except for Paul, saw this happen. They were there when Jesus broke bread and gave it to the disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. But Paul says, I received this from the Lord. He is saying, my understanding of the Lord's Supper, I didn't observe it with my eyes, but he says, the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught me that he did this. And then he taught me the significance of it. And then Paul says, having received this tradition, I also passed it on to you. And so the Lord's Supper and the meaning of Christ's death for us on the cross is something that is handed down from God to the leadership of the church and then from one generation of the church to another, like a tradition is. Another verse here 
is the verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.1, which says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. The same word that's, that's used here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Paul says the gospel itself, that Christ died for our sins, as we'll see in a second, and rose again, that was a tradition that God himself communicated to the apostles and that the apostles passed on to the church. And this tells us that the gospel itself is an essential part of who we are in Christ. It's an essential, um, it's a core doctrine of our faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.3 makes the same point when it says, For I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then he says, and that he was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. But notice that the word received here is the same word we have here in Philippians 4.9. When Paul says, whatever you have learned or received, the things he has in mind in terms of received are the core doctrines of the faith which were passed down from God to the apostles and to the church in generation after generation. Now, what's the meaning here? What's the point of this? The point of this word, received, is that Christians don't define the faith or redefine it in every generation. Instead, the Christian faith defines us. God himself has handed down the meaning of what it is to be a Christian. And certain core facts, such as the incarnation of Christ, the second person of God became a man. And that he died for our sins and rose again for our justification. These have been handed down from God himself to Christians and then perpetuated in one generation after another of Christians. And if we don't receive this truth, what does that mean? It means we're not Christians. If we don't receive what God has communicated about what it means to be a Christian, then we're not Christians. No matter how much we would like to say that we're Christians, if we don't receive these core doctrines, we don't belong to Christ. And so, for example, if I say, okay, I believe that Christ died for my sins, but I can't accept the idea that he rose from the dead. Am I still a Christian? No, because I haven't received from the Lord what was passed down from the Lord that Christ died from our sins and rose again for us. I did not receive one of the crucial facts, one of the crucial core doctrines of Christianity that defines what it means to be a Christian. And so the application then for us, when Paul says, whatever you have learned or received is this, that we don't get to negotiate with God about the faith that we profess. We don't get to tell God what we find acceptable or unacceptable in the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Christianity is not a buffet. In a post-COVID-19 world, I don't know if we'll ever go to a buffet again. But when you do go to a buffet, or when you used to go to a buffet, there are many choices of food laid out for you, right, on those steam tables. And at the end of those steam tables, there might be a guy carving, you know, ham or roast beef or whatever. You have the opportunity at the buffet to take what you want and not take what you don't want. You can say, give me a portion of that roast beef that you're cutting, and I'll take some mashed potatoes too, but I'm not going to take those Brussels sprouts, okay? 
And a buffet, you get to choose and pick what you want and what you don't want. But you can't do that as a Christian. As a Christian, you have to receive what God has communicated to us. And any bit that you don't receive disqualifies you from really calling yourself a Christian. Now, once we have received the truths of Christianity, the core doctrines of our faith, once we have received those, then we have two responsibilities. One of them is to put them into practice, which is what Paul is saying here in Philippians 4.9. Whatever you have received, put it into practice. So obedience to the things we've received as Christians is one of our obligations as Christians. The other one, though, the second responsibility we have is to pass it on to others. That's the point of a tradition. It's passed from one generation to another. And so not only do we receive the core doctrines of the faith, but it's our job as Christians to pass them on intact to the next generation, whether that next generation is our children who come to Christ in our homes or people outside of our homes that we lead to Christ and disciple. It's our job to pass on the doctrines of the Christian faith from one generation to another so that those doctrines are preserved. They are what define us as Christians. And so when Paul says we need to receive and obey the truth in every way that's communicated, one way it's communicated is that it is learned, like in a classroom. Another way it's, it's communicated is that it is received like a tradition. The third thing he says in verse 9 is this, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or heard from me. That third way that truth comes into our lives as Christians is that truth is heard like a rumor. Truth is heard like a rumor. Now, when Paul says in Philippians 4, 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, he might mean you've heard me teach, okay? But if so, then that's just restating the first one, which says whatever you've learned like in a classroom. And so scholars don't think, and I agree with them, that Paul, I don't think Paul is talking about his direct teaching in this, in this particular word, Instead, when Paul says, whatever you have heard from me, he doesn't mean something you've heard me teach as much as he is, it seems like he is saying from other passages of Scripture as well, what you've heard about me from other churches. In other words, Paul is probably talking about his reputation when he says in Philippians 4.9, whatever you have heard from me. He really means, it probably could be better translated, what you have heard about me. And remember that as Paul gave the gospel, as he traveled the world as it was known to him, giving the gospel message and forming churches, he would stay and teach in a classroom, sometimes for years, getting those churches formed and putting them on a pathway of following Jesus Christ. But then once he had installed elders in those churches to continue teaching and leading the church, he would move on to another city and start over again. But as Paul traveled from town to town and city to city, his reputation also was communicated. In other words, Paul spent time in Philippi, discipling the, the, believers, the, the believers we call the Philippians, for whom this letter is named. But then he went to other places. He went to Corinth. He went to Ephesus. He went to these other cities. And yet, Christians communicated with one another, and what Paul was doing in these cities would get back to Philippi. And so what Paul is saying is, you not only have learned directly from me, but you've seen or heard at least about what I'm doing in other places. My reputation 
continues to echo throughout the Christian world, even though I'm in other cities. And so they not only heard Paul's teaching about what it meant to follow Christ, but they heard about how he was living that out in his own life in different contexts. Some of the cities Paul's went to, he was persecuted in. And the churches that didn't see Paul be persecuted heard about that persecution. They heard about how he stood firm in the gospel of Christ and didn't buckle in order to receive his freedom. That was information about the Christian life they learned from his reputation. Or they heard about how Paul would go into Corinth and he would address the problems there through church discipline. That's not something that the Philippians directly experienced, but it's something they heard about. Okay, and so Paul is saying, not only does truth come into our life through the direct teaching of God's word, like it does in the first word, whatever you have learned, and not only does it come through oral tradition passed down from one generation to another, that's what you've received, but Paul says you also heard about the reputation of other Christians. And Paul says that's a truth point that you should put into practice as well. Now we stand 2,000 years after the founding of the local church. And we have not only the reputation of other Christians, but we have reputation, uh, the reputation of, people who, of other Christians that have been handed down in biographies. In other words, there are 2,000 years of church history where God's people have lived for Jesus Christ in many different contexts, many different situations. And they have demonstrated to us what it means to live out your faith in Jesus Christ. And the stories of those people who have lived out their faith in Jesus Christ, their reputations, they inform us about what it means to walk with Christ in our culture. And so Paul says, whatever you have heard about me, about my reputation, put that into practice as well. Finally, truth is not only learned as in a classroom, received like in a tradition, heard like in a rumor, but truth is seen like an example. It's seen like as an example. A lot of what you and I do as people, we actually mimicked. We pop copied from our parents, or we copied from, maybe in your employment context, from someone that hired you and trained you. We copy the behaviors of people around us. And even I, as a pastor, in many ways I have thought through my theology, I've thought through what church practice should look like, but the truth is I've also copied from the pastors that have led me as well. And this is part of the Christian faith. It's part of what God wants for us to do. God wants us to copy the example of godly people who have gone before us. One of the ways we learn what it means to live out faith in Jesus Christ is we watch the example of other godly people and we put what they do into practice in our own lives. And when Paul says in Philippians 4.9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, that phrase seen in me means the example that I've provided for you, the way that I've lived, the Philippians and you and I as Christians are to put into example the practice of God's truth that we see lived out in the godly lives of other people. We should see what the elders of this church do, and we should do that. We should see what Paul did, and we should do that. Paul says, however the truth comes into your life, whether it came in a classroom, whether it came through tradition that was handed down, the core body of doctrine that we believe as Christians, whether it's a reputation of mine that you heard, or whether it's just following my example that you saw with your eyes, 
All of these things are ways that God inputs his truth into our lives as Christians. And our responsibility then in verse 9 is put it into practice. Don't just notice what it looks like to be a Christian. Be obedient to all of those sources of truth and live it out in your daily life. That's the message of Philippians 4.9. That as Christians, we are to live out the truth that God has put into our life, no matter what the source of that truth is, no matter how it came into our lives. At the end of verse 9, we see the promised result. The promised result of our obedience to God's word. And that promised result is God's peaceful presence with us. Look again at Philippians 4.9, which says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and then we see this, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, the word and is sometimes a connector, but sometimes it connects in a logical way. It tells us the result of something we do, and that's how it's functioning here. Paul is saying when you live out the truth that you've received, regardless of how you receive it, you get the peace of God in your life. And not just the peace of God, but the God of peace, the presence of God in your life. The promise in this passage is that God will be with you. But what does that mean? I mean, God is everywhere present in the fullness of his being. And so in a sense, he is with even the most ardent persecutor of Christians and the, most, the person who hates him the most. And so it's not talking about his presence in a general sense. Now, when the Bible talks about God being with us, he is saying he's with us as our ally. He's on our side, in a sense. He's not just present with us, but he's present with us in blessing and in assistance. And Paul says, if you want the God of peace in your life, if you want God's uh, ally to be your ally in life, you need to put into practice the things that you've learned as a Christian, regardless of how you've learned them. And I think one of the reasons why Christians, some Christians struggle with assurance of their salvation, it's not the only reason, but I think it's an important reason, why some Christians struggle with the assurance of their salvation is that they're not obedient to the Word of God. They may be getting all the inputs. They might be reading the Word. They might be hearing the Word taught. They might be watching it lived out in other people's lives, but they're not actually obeying Christ themselves. They're not walking down that pathway that we call the Christian life. And so what happens then is they don't have the comforting presence of God with them. And therefore, they lack assurance of salvation. Paul says, How do you, if you want to experience God with you as your ally, you need to walk out the things that you've learned. Put them into practice in your life. And the description of God that's given to us at the end of verse 9 is that He is the God of peace. That means the God who gives peace, the God who brings peace. And so as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience through all of these inputs, the Bible says we receive the presence of God as our ally, and that delivers to us the peace of God in our everyday walk. It helps take away the anxieties that come so naturally to us as people in this world. And this is a callback, of course, to verse 7. Remember verse 7? where it says, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 says the peace of God will be in your life. Verse 9 says the God of peace will be in your life. 
And it's two ways of looking at the same truth. That when you follow God in your life, when you obey His command not to be anxious but to pray, when you obey His command to rejoice in the Lord, when you obey His command to think about the things that verse 8 tells us to think about, then you're living out the truth. And God's peaceful presence will accompany you through your life. He'll help you quash that anxiety that comes so naturally to people and to experience His comforting presence with you. Now, you may remember that I said last time and and earlier in this session as well that in this verse, the verb, put it into practice, means to accomplish something through activity. To accomplish something through activity. I want to revisit that idea here at the close of this message. There are two ways to live according to Scripture. One way that human beings live is the way that seems obvious to people. It's it's the way that the majority of human beings have lived throughout human history and the way that the majority of, of human beings are living today. It's a way that seems right internally. It's a way of following your own desires and your own passions and your own thoughts and also the crowd. It seems comforting. But the Bible says that's, in fact, the wrong way to live. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. The phrase appears to be right tells us that it appeals to us. It seems logical. It seems like the right way to go. But in the end, it says it leads to death. That is, it leads us to utter condemnation under God because it's not the way that God commands us to live. So that's one way we can live in this life. The other way is to follow a different path, the path of Jesus Christ. And Christ himself said this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where he said, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Most of the people in humanity have gone down that broad and easy path. But Jesus continued in Matthew 7, verse 14, and said, But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. When we follow the easy road, the big road, There are so many people on it that it seems like the right way to go. It's very comforting to be in the crowd. As the old saying goes, millions of people can't be wrong, can they? Yeah, they can, according to God's word. Jesus said the road that most people are on is a road that leads to destruction. The alternative is to find the hard way, the narrow way. And the narrow way is the way that follows Jesus Christ. It's a way that learns his truth as in a classroom, and receives his truth like a tradition, and that hears about God's people living out the truth as if they were hearing a rumor about somebody. And it's a way that watches people who are on the road to following Jesus Christ before us and seeing the way that they live and progress down that road. There are two ways to live, the easy way and the hard way. The easy way leads to the condemnation of God because it's apart from his commands. The hard way is the path of obedience, receiving God's truth and putting it into practice in our life, but the Bible says it leads to eternal life. And along the road, we receive the God of peace, his comforting presence with us that helps us through the difficult times and assures us that we're on the right road, even though we may feel alone at times. 
That's what Paul's teaching us in this verse. That following Jesus Christ means taking the narrow road, receiving God's truth in many forms, and then always putting it into practice in our life, being obedient to the truth that we receive. And so to put all of this verse into the context of this paragraph, we've seen in this paragraph in Philippians 4, 4 through 9, in the many sessions that I use to cover this, we've seen that when you rejoice in the Lord, when, when Christ is the object of your joy and your desire, when He is where you get your meaning and significance in life, when He is the source of truth, that's what rejoicing in the Lord means, then it's going to do some things to you. It's going to make you gentle with other people. It's going to make you prayerful when you feel anxious. It's going to guard the way that you think about certain things. And to add today's truth, it'll make you obedient to God's word. When you rejoice in Jesus Christ, you're going to want to do what Jesus Christ said to do. Because pleasing him and having his comforting presence in your life means more than anything else in the world. And so if we apply that truth to our lives today, then a better brand of happiness comes from learning and obeying God's word. Now again, on these two roads... The world calls to us from that broad road and says, this is the way to happiness. You can define the way that you live your life. You can do what you want. You can go your own way. You can pursue your own goals. And you'll be happy. But I think if you think about your own life, when you have pursued your own goals, when you followed your own sinful pathways, did it lead you to happiness? may have led to pleasure for a temporary time, but it didn't lead to the satisfying peace of God. The Bible says the way to find that is to take the other road. A better brand of happiness is found on the road of obedience to Jesus Christ. That obedience to Jesus Christ begins when you receive the truth of, Jesus, the truth of Christianity, which is that Christ died for your sins. And if you've come here this morning or you're watching this on video and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's where this all begins. If you want to know the peace of God in your life and if you want to learn to rejoice in the Lord, you have to start by not trying to please God with your own human activity, but instead you need to receive His forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's what you need to do first. You need to put your faith and trust in Him. Once you've trusted Jesus Christ, once all of us have trusted Jesus Christ, now we're on that path to obedience. And my question for us, our question as we look at this passage is, what's the level of our obedience to Christ? Are we staying on that road following what we've learned in the Christian faith, or are we deviating off the pathway back onto the road, the, the, the wide road, the values and the the pleasures that that road offers to us. The world around us and the wide road around us offers us pleasure. It offers us a form of happiness, but it's not a real form of happiness. It's temporary, and it comes with a high price tag. A better brand of happiness comes when we receive God's Word and put it into practice in our lives. This is a better brand of happiness.